Hello, everybody. Welcome back to an episode of Zeus with Bruce. Today, I have an incredible guest with me, a good friend of mine, Coda Pipitone. Hey, how are you, my friend? Doing good. Okay, good so uh, thank you. This conversation is going to be very free-flowing. Uh, Coda, for me, is a source of wisdom, source of knowledge. And for us here at Zeus with Bruce, we like to combine theory and also practice. And I believe Coda has the two of them. So just to begin, introduce yourself. What should the audience know about you before we Sure, sure. So Coda Pipitone, grateful to be here, dropping in with my brother Bruce. And uh, in the world, I operate under a consultancy called Emergent Intelligence, which deals with frontier infrastructure, deep technology, and commercializing that so the legacy of our species is optimal. Hmm. Uh, That looks like consulting with the Flow Genome Project, which I'm sure we'll go into more. And Mm -hmm. that's Jamie Wheel's work, and we're bringing that to corporations for team leadership operating systems from the boardroom to the backcountry. I'm working with Gina Health, which is a plant-based liposomal supplement company. It's the future of healing. Your body can do so much if we just properly mm, support it. So true. And, uh, and, and in a conversation with some publicly traded clean technology development funds on how to commercialize those vehicles. So before emergent intelligence and this larger scale entrepreneurship, I was a serial entrepreneur first in cooperatives. Mm a cafe, restaurant, event space in Baltimore City called Red Emma's Worker Cooperative. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot about owning a business at a young age. Then I went to activism, politics. I'm sure we'll get into that. Social justice frame, victims, hierarchies of hey, oppression, all this. Oh but all I, the words I like to yeah, hear. <laughs> but, I, but I got really activated on building better tools for social workers to help more people. Mm-hmm. I built a software company, Homo Services, called Host Home Inc. Can you go um, into that, Homo yeah, Services? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, we can go to that. And, just to give you the run. Mm-hmm. And after that, I did a wearable device design firm on these biometrics of well-being. So people are not in their houses because they're actually not in their bodies. So the right. next mission was to help people be more embodied. So we built this jewelry with wellness sensors and things. Super fun, but the pandemic made it very hard to raise capital for a hardware startup. So <laughs> that didn't go too far. Um, and then I moved into the psychedelic therapeutics investment space. Really did a lot of diligence and research in that space and ended up taking that thesis and partnering with a fund of funds to do AI and biotechnology investments into vintage fund funds. So that was a whole learning and networking experience took me all over the world. And so that's really what you need to know professionally, but the undercurrent of all that was a journey of embodiment that was fueled by uh, ceremonial plant medicines and deep study in world religions. And we have the guest speaker today. Yeah, this, is, this is Bart. Although, um, uh, short for Bartholomew, mm-hmm. which I thought it was Bart Simpson. So that, <laughs> that just goes to show a little bit of a disconnect. But uh, a man of the people. Yeah, and, and, and Bart is, uh, is, I'm the uncle of Bart. I'm not his primary person. So this person's Noah. Noah will come by after the podcast and take Bart away. Oh, um, Bart, yeah, so, so yeah, we can, we can dive in on any of those threads. But I think that the, the personal journey is really the, the current that pushed me towards what my mission is. Mm. And, and as that personal journey evolved with uh, going into identity community, going to the transgender community, and then coming back into masculinity and men's work, mm. there's just these, these what look like pivots, but really are refining of what I'm really here to do. And as I deprogrammed and reprogrammed those ideologies, I found myself more in integrity with each transformation, more in alignment with each transformation, and ultimately more conviction because I'm more integrated. Would you say that, because it's interesting, especially you were saying just transgender and then uh, all that stuff. Yeah. Would you say that sometimes 
when we're trying to get from, let's say we're making a metamorphosis mm -hmm. that in the journey, we may need to make not a mistake. But we need, we may need to go through something that actually at the time we think makes a lot of rational sense, which it does. You know, people have a lot of regrets saying, Oh, I feel so bad for the decision I made at that time. You're operating with the information you had. So is it really a bad decision? Mm. Maybe the outcome wasn't great Yeah. for yourself. You feel like that's a necessary point that people need to experience. Can you bypass yeah. tragedy tra or challenge in order to arrive at triumph? For sure. Uh, I love that bypassing tragedy to arrive at triumph. Well, I believe we are all in the dojo of our choosing. We're all signing up for the crucible of our lives and life is having a human experience through us. So without getting into the word salad of all that, I think as I'm climbing up the mountain here in my career in life, I was a, a quote unquote, do it alone motherfucker. I was like, I'm going to just do this myself. Yeah. yeah. And, and then, you know, maybe there's, I don't know if there was dark triad personality, narcissism, ego, egotistical startup founder archetype. I can change the world. And in many ways on the microphone, people did listen, respond and act based on the things that I was saying. So maybe I did uh, believe that I could do it all alone. But it was really when I started getting mentors that I started uh, expanding a bit. And if I had to look back and advise my younger self, I would recommend to be open to those mentors earlier. Mm -hmm you're getting all of their wisdom you're getting their navigation and there might be a different route up that mountain mm -hmm. so i had to really get the value of mentorship by going without mentors for a moment so the absence of them help you appreciate the value of them right yeah that's right really true it's like the absence making the hardcore founder yeah you appreciate it if it's not there and like you're speaking about the mountaintop if you are able to get to the mountaintop but in a different way if that other way you take is less arduous, it's quicker, it's easier. Do you can you really embody the lessons and the wisdom that's there in the same way? Right, right. I I don't think you can, but I don't believe that I can know that that's wrong. So to have a mentor guide you towards the the, the cleaner route earlier, yeah, I won't get that experience of hardship. I won't habituate the discipline to overcome and move through it. But I'm sure I will encounter another challenge on the clear path mm -hmm. and I will habituate those skills later. So this is kind of the conversation with people around mental health and using pharmaceuticals to stabilize their mental health. Well, they're not going to learn the, the kind of offline you know, navigation of psychological volatility if you're in a sober state, right? If you're always numbing with a psychotropic or, or a SSRI, you're not learning how to fly those highs and lows. But there are subtler distinctions that you would then learn. So if we suddenly put bumpers up on the bowling alley, so we're not getting gutter balls when we roll, when we, when we try to get, you know, get a strike, well, maybe we're going to learn the nuances of how to spin and get the precise strike instead of leaving one hanging in the corner. Maybe we're going to refine what we're actually here to do. So I don't, I don't uh, uh, devalue or critique anybody who is, blunting the edges of the journey mm. because I think that there is just as much insight in the subtlety and I don't believe uh, we are at the, the, the full you know, expression or the crescendo of this, this epoch of humanity. I think there's a lot of nuance for us yet to refine. So I don't know that it's necessarily required that we all retread those same hardships when we have tools that can numb them or, or manage them more effectively. I personally have chosen to go raw, like to feel it all and, yeah, and yeah, to feel yeah. the fire and to feel the pain and to, 
and to, to experience it firsthand. I, you know, someone told me the fire was hot and I didn't listen. I touched the fire and got burned and now I know it's hot. Do you need to touch the fire to know it's hot? That's what we're asking, right? I, I, th I think you kind of, two away, you don't need to. However, if you want to derive your own personal wisdom and story in a way, yeah. I think you might have to. Like, for yeah. example, you don't need to jump in front of a bus to know it's probably going to hurt. Yeah. Right? But then, you know, I have a friend who I grew up with. Uh, it was crazy. This kid, he would get in so many accidents, but he would never get hurt. He was riding his bike down the hill. A car literally ran him over, got up without a scratch. Right? And like, now he has a story that he can actually supplement with that. Yeah. I, I mean, I definitely would say I got hurt. Um, and the, the, my, the sources of my pain, um, self-generated, right? I'm a full agent in it. But I have a lot of intellectual gifts. My, my grandfather on my mom's side designed the lunar module for the Apollo mission. So we landed on the moon due to his work. Oh, nice. um, and this high engineering brain and all of the children, all of the, the men are doctors and lawyers. And you know, my mom worked in a research lab at Johns Hopkins. So a lot of intellectual horsepower. And then my father's side were Italian immigrants as well. And they, they were entrepreneurs. Um, social intelligence, you know, real estate, um, they were trading horses. What, what do you say social intelligence? Do you mean the implementation of it or the study of it or both? I would say, yeah, I would say both, uh, you know, they're not, they're not exclusive. When, yeah. When my, when my grandfather, uh, would have parties with his men's club, La Dolce Vida in, in Baltimore, Maryland, and all the Italian entrepreneur men would come together. He was, he was like the VIP. He was the, the, the guy that everybody looked to. And he knew everybody and every, he knew something about everybody and he knew everybody's families. So he was just really good at that politicking in yeah. entrepreneurial communities. Mm -hmm. And so I, I kind of came with both of those capacities. So what then I did um, when I got back from traveling the world after undergrad and, um, and, <laughs> and looking for how to apply myself, we can get into why I was looking in this, these areas, but I was looking at uh, oppressed communities, socioeconomic injustice, and inner cities in Baltimore is ground zero for that. And I was looking in that there's a high degree of LGBTQ and transgender. So I was looking at that even before I was identifying with that and thinking how I could help. So I began essentially politicking and then innovating. So my brain got really clear on the ideologies, the frameworks and, and, the, and technologies. And I wasn't really sourcing from self as to what I wanted. I was externally referencing Wow. What I thought yeah. should be. The environment was selling you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then I ended up making changes to my body to align with that externally referenced mission. And I, I essentially dragged my body through the hard things um, until I ultimately couldn't even feel what I, what I personally wanted or personally liked. Because I was so established in doing what I thought one ought to want. Hmm. Right. Yeah. I, I had the, I was a startup founder. I was a, the, the, the transhumanist. What, what's the age range for these? Like, 24 history? to 28, 29. Okay. I was, I was essentially like very cool in the, in the, in the social justice and tech startup scene. Uh, and I didn't know who I was. Wow. You were everybody but yourself. Yeah. Whew. Powerful. Yeah. Cause it's like also the adoption of identity. Yeah. And figuring out at what point did you decide, okay, now I'm going to be this. Is it, is it a continuous flow of your character developing or like you have that experience where you're in Baltimore and you see things happening, then you adopt what's happening there, right? A lot of people, they believe in one way to understand poverty, they need to then, they themselves actually be poor. Mm, yeah. In a way to actually hear it, but in a way, yes, in a way, no. 
right? It's like, do you know what it's like to not be able to, or to not know where your next payment is going to come from for the rent? Yeah, so I, I definitely put on put on poverty because I wanted to increase my empathy. And that's not right. That's savior yeah. complex in a lot of ways. Um, and there's also another fuel in that that was rebelliousness in your 20s. That's your parents are wrong, society's wrong, make them wrong. One day you'll see that we're right. And this is rapture ideologies. We can go into this later. But this is a whole, this is very common. Like when setting out on our own, individuating from our family of origin, we, we, we create that space mm. and we go all the way over here. And then, and then later the prodigal son returns. Home. Prodigal son returns. It's a, the Bible always finds someone in these conversations. Yeah. It's powerful. And it actually reminds me of this idea. I'd love to touch upon this because the relationship with the parents and our identity, how it expands. Mm. When, when we're born, our parents, if we're lucky enough or if we're fortunate enough to have both of them, our parents are the gods in our life, right? Yeah. They supply us with protection. They provide for us. They're, they're our God in a way. When we're children or even could be young adults, we idolize our parents because they're the figures that if we have a healthy relationship, we idolize them. And then during the rebellious aspect of it, 20s, mm-hmm. late teens, 20s, we then demonize them. Mm-hmm. Right? So we go from idolizing our gods, then we demonize our gods. Mm-hmm. And then later on, I believe when we actually age, we begin to humanize our gods. I love that. It's, that's such a beautiful yeah. special that it goes on. And I think that's the same with, we're going to go to this as well. Similar to even religious religious aspects, even teachings, even if you believe in whatever ideology, whether it's conservative or liberal, any of these aspects, we're born into this. Our rebellious nature and our tendency to want to find self-identity yeah. challenges it, so then we demonize it after we idolize it. But then later on, we realize if we're perspicacious enough, we realize, huh, we actually don't have all the answers. Let's yeah. then humanize it. Yeah. Yeah, so that process for me of humanizing my family of origin began to take place and then unlocked a lot of alignment that I didn't even know was there because I wasn't open to it. Uh, when I did my went deeper into personal development, so I had been working with Biharika and Sato Daime and this indigenous frames around having ecstatic experiences and really finding my church. We can talk about what that was like because I had done a semester of seminary, studied world religions in college. I want to get into traveled the world, and my, my father was a little bit like, I love you, but he's kind of white knuckling, holding on to the relationship. Like, hey, are you spiritually grounded in the community of faith? And I, and I was, you know, exploring. Now I understand that was a, that's a walkabout. And when I came back from a ceremony that was near my family's farm, and went to visit on the Sunday morning after ceremony and they a family had just gotten back from Catholic church and I was telling them about the ceremony and my dad got like oh I just went to church Oof, right he, he, got, church? he, yeah. he got that that I yes. had found a church of my own flavor and he then felt much more comfortable um, as a parent relating to me in that he knew I wasn't adrift in the spiritual milieu of the culture anymore. And I'd found something that was real. And we've really developed a relationship uh, since then around spiritual and faith-based conversations. But the the question of humanizing was simultaneous to that where I did Landmark Forum. I went all the way through you know, the, their, their curriculum into the ILP, which is um, the, the leadership program. And it, in that, you complete with your parents, which basically says, thank you for raising me. Thank you for all these things I got from that. And then owns all the stuff that 
didn't get, right? Humans are flawed in so many ways. So Owen's all this, the areas this is a part of the transition from, yeah. let's say, adolescence into adulthood. Yeah. Right, like it's kind of that ritual aspect. And I, we yeah. do, if you're okay with it, talking yeah. about the ritual with yeah. the chest. Yeah. Uh, but even then, we've lost a lot of that in the culture, right? So in like Judaism, you would have the bat mitzvah or bar mitzvah. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, in Christianity, there's typically the baptism uh, and all these other forms of the transition from the adolescence of the, of the kind of the, the dependency to then becoming the independent adult. But having that ceremony, a lot of people yeah. have that ceremony. Yeah. You know, if you live, uh, in major cities in the U.S. or even around the world, you know, in impoverished cities, you'd have this initiation to a gig. Yeah. So they take many different forms. However, the absence of it is, in my opinion, definitely doing a lot of destruction because we do need to transform, right? It's like that transforming state into our next level yeah. that we have. Uh, and not many people, I would say less than 1%, would have your experience that you had. For me, I believe the one you talked about was yeah. a transformation. Yeah. Would you would you share that one? Sure, uh, sure. Very powerful. So Excellent. let's let's what you're referring to is Sundance and Lakota yeah. ceremony. Yep. Uh, and and we can go in a little bit. So with the once I complete with the parents, then it transforms over to adults relating sovereign. I'm I'm accountable for my life. You're accountable for your life, and we can be friends with this family of origin tie biologically, which then opened up like a lot of hey, they see what I'm doing professionally, and they had some relationships they could bring. They respected me more as a, a, a professional and creating value in the world, and they felt comfortable introducing me to some of their friends who I didn't even know they had that were in the industry that I was in. So that all unlocked after I really got present to owning my share of my childhood and thanking them for their participation and guidance in that. Um, I, around that time, I was <clears throat> building out the, the fund around consciousness, mostly psychedelics, mental health, and looking at transformational tech. So. We go into San Francisco, there's the Trans Tech Conference, Nicole Bradford, all these transpersonal psychology, the supplements, pharmaceuticals, and devices that enable healing, essentially. It's like biohacking hardware and supplements. So there's a whole community around this in San Francisco and LA, and I was in that. This community uh, integrated my Western frame around the indigenous medicines I've been working with. And when I started to deepen the the work with the tribes, I ultimately was invited to go to the Ashaninka and live with them. I did a long retreat for almost two weeks. Where is that at? In Acre, Brazil. Oh, Brazil. Uranka Tassarensi Center. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then <laughs> I, from there, I was invited to the Yawanawa and the Lakota. So the Yawanawa are a little bit more integrated with the West. They do a lot more trade and they have this sacred village where you go deep into ceremony. And I did a retreat there, lasted almost a month. And then I came out and worked with the Lakota. Um, this is after I stopped doing transness. I stopped really doing gender and started doing human. Doing so this is when you detransition. De- de- yeah. So I was you know, not injecting any estrogen anymore. I was had scheduled surgery to remove my breast implants and had you know, begun to reintroduce testosterone and retrain masculinity. After having trained authentic relating nonviolent communication, I started to actually come back into polarity and, and assertiveness and and less agreeableness as we can kind of yeah. poke at. The ocean, sort yeah. of like the frame of, uh, yeah. Yeah, so, yep. so this is all the build up to, to then I got invited to dance with the Lakota. And the Lakota nation is a, a long history with the U.S. They're the only nation to ever beat the U.S. military head on. No. Um, and they no. did that at the Battle of Wounded Knee. And they later got defeated in the, in the whole engagement, but they did win a battle. And this is, this is First Nations, Indigenous, this is Indians versus Cowboys. And 
they you know bow and arrows and horseback versus rifles and somehow the Lakota warriors won well how was this initiation and it's a it's a it's to balance the polarity of women bleeding in childbirth women bleeding every month in menstruation what can men do well masculine is that discipline being where you say you'd be when you say you'd be there ready to go so the men commit to a four-year process of doing the vision quest and then doing this four-day sun dance which is no food no water dancing all day every day and doing the super hot saunas in the morning and night so you imagine like waking up doing a sauna called temescal going and dancing in the sun all day and then going and doing another temescal this is in sleep. brazil right and this yeah. one is actually taking place in in mexico and it's also in the dakotas and south dakota and whatnot it's, it's during the summer really? uh, it's in the summer oh, so it's, 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 it's very hot yeah and on the last day, there's an offering of flesh that happens, and it's a little bit more sensitive to talk about. And I and I and I actually don't like talking about it too much because, like, it's it's not something I want to and I don't want to be known as. But it's it's mm-hmm. something that I think, as far as initiation, it it makes you your word matters. Like if you don't complete four years, the man who sponsored you completes your four years for you. So it's it's. Like they're literally on the hook if you yeah don't. pun intended yeah I guess I mean, it, no pun <laughs> so and it's it's a it definitely brings about a, a near death experience in psychology and then you you encounter a part of yourself that you've been protecting yourself from so I encountered a part of me that's able to do that which is a similar part of me that's probably able to to kill and defend and you know bring up a lot of fire to do that thing because it's really hard and, you, and your animal feels like it's trapped and you have to release um and now i'm in touch with that part of myself so now i have to up level my discipline and understand there's a code of honor around that part of me so i don't like yeah i I used to play football and have that space where you could smash go full out um now as an adult male i'm not playing competitive sports what is the role of that well there's protecting there's there's generating that energy in in business to have conviction and and drive forward on our initiative Um, and there's also the this the knowing that I can go there actually allows me to create more safety and security for those around me. Mm-hmm. And there are other men. So it's very different if you're in London or New York where there's no firearms versus if you're in Texas, where people are open carrying. And in Texas, I find it's actually because that people who are trained and licensed to deploy technology of, that can, can be violent, but it's very it's stabilizing and grounding. Like we're not playing around here. Like we are fully human, which means our full human animal is able to go there and therefore can care very deeply. So you're saying that none of it is actually, let's to maybe say push uh, underneath the rug. It's, it's very present. They give mm-hmm. the ability to actually do some kind of damage mm-hmm. to its max. And a lot of times when you're suppressing it, there's a certain medium that it would need to be really strong. And yeah. I, I think it's a challenge uh, you were saying with football. It's, you know, a lot of people say, what's the value of a lot of the sports as we get older? It's in a way organized warfare. Yeah. Right? And it's very primal for men specifically yeah. to want to release that. But in a civilized society, you know, society can change, but our paleolithic brains, they don't change as fast. So how do we adapt it? Like you're saying. Exactly. And we don't shut it down. Uh, yeah. If you shut it down or press it, it's going to come out in some weird taboo or kink or something. Right? This is look at the instances of porn addiction. Look yeah. at how men treat their penises and, and masturbation. And that's where that human animal is expressing because we're trying to tame it and like put a screen in front of our eyes and then and try to. But it's like actually there's a role, a healthy, honorable expression of that in the world, which is why the military exists. It's not because 
we can't establish peace in the world. It's because we need a place for that element of society to express with honor. Mm-hmm. And it's not a painful experience. I haven't served in the military, but many of my friends have. And I understand like there's an aspect of the male human that some females have too, but there's an aspect of masculinity and humanity that needs some arena or theater to express with honor. And I don't know that it's right to eradicate that element of our species and try to put on an artificial pacifism when we're literally violently chewing up plants to digest and metabolize energy. So we are full life gives life, right? Ethically. And, 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 you know, plants give themselves to animals, animals give themselves to other animals, and we are an animal. Mm. So to cut off from that circle of energy and life and mm. transformation, I think is actually, there's some moral implications of that. And, and, and I'm not saying we go around killing each other, mm. but I am saying we have an aspect of ourselves that is this, and it's important to be aware and be in relationship with that aspect so it doesn't express in unexpected ways. I like what you said about the artificial pessimism. It reminds me of this quote, uh, by, I believe it's by E.O. Wilson. Mm-hmm. And he says that we have uh, paleolithic brains with medieval institutions and godlike technology. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was thinking about this one, and I believe it relates so much to that because there is that primal aspect of ourselves, institutions that we developed from the primal aspect, but then now they haven't been adapted in a modern sense. And then now there's a lot of idealism, a lot of this, like you said, artificial pacifism, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, yeah, full abundance and full peace. Yes, mm-hmm. we do want this. However, how do we channel a certain energy? And of course, we don't need to go out and be militarily violent or do anything no. like that. And of course, there's a place for you need to defend yourself and all these things. Yeah. But if you take that out, it's the same thing in, I would say, in more of the feminine energy. Yeah. If you take away the feminine energy, their ability to express with communication and their ability to really dive deep into their emotions in that sense. In a collective, you are robbing them of an experience. And if you even look at the playground in, let's say, an elementary school or a high school, if, even if you don't instruct them, what's going to tend to happen is that the boys are going to play in these sports where there needs to be some kind of winner because there's an establishment of like a hierarchy yeah. and a competitive nature. Within uh, the girls, they're more likely to just find it's like okay, we both win. Yeah, sort of like that kind of compromise element. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of hard psychology on this that that could be useful to point to. But just for the accessibility to audience and whatnot, we the male developmental cascade from the semen inseminating the egg. It the every the genetic biologist will tell you that every cell division has a, a, a trajectory that is what we call gender and that's polarity right when you engender something in society you are creating a creation is a generative process gender is the same etymology we're engendering and polarity is the, the mechanism by which we engender and then manifest reality so to degender is actually it it, it neutralizes the, the the creation in the world um so uh, I want to I want to go in on polarity naturally occurs, and the male system as it develops downward and outward, we have um, like our our the, the development of our organs, development of our psychology is all in this cascade of how. Our endocrine system is maturing and, and expressing, and it's different from the female system, just objectively and medically. 
And if we allow that to just happen, there are periods of the human development where uh, insulin growth factor, IGF-1 secretes, and then these, these secondary sex characteristics take place. And it's a, there's micro traumas that happen that then we peer bond with others going through similar transformations. So peer bond or peer bond? Peer, peer like okay. peer groups. Mm. This is how social development happens. And, um, and that process is important to becoming a full and complex human. And if left untouched, we'll find that most males to a certain percentage will group up around other males navigating puberty, both primary puberty at like eight to 11 years old, secondary puberty, 18 to 22, it's neurological. And then ultimately when that uh, process stabilizes around 27 to 30, you have this social stability of who you are in the world. And then historically we begin the death process around 35 to 40. Now we extend that lifespan. So th those stages of certain growth hormones secreting and then certain neurological chemicals anchoring in their reward payoff systems to optimize for reproduction, mate seeking, um, and then getting more food and getting more adventure and novelty. Those are all really interrelated. And if we just look at it in the most simple lens, this is what we call men and women. Wow. Okay. Even I'm a little confused. Yeah. So I'm just, I just went into the, to the biology of what's happening from the, from our body growing and maturing, bonding with like animals going through similar developmental processes. And then us grouping that into a social category called a man and a woman. Okay. You mean from the, from there, that's where it ends up. Yeah. So if we interrupt that as a lot of uh, some, some like neo-feminist ideology or third wave feminism will, will advocate for, and the intent is to neutralize the negative impact of the patriarchy or whatever the, 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 the motivation is, I think we then put this abstraction into these natural processes. And while there may be examples of societies in, in history who had different, different boundaries on what gender did and didn't do, and, and, and there was more freedom and flexibility or different patternings, there's still ultimately the male body is downward and outward energy capable of outward energy, which can express as violence, the female energy it, it brings in and incubates yes. and then senses and having injected estrogen for about six years, I understand, I essentially, what was that? When you began 24. Okay, 24. So I essentially induced a neurological puberty around and also this physiological puberty additional where I got to have a little bit of that female, I felt like essentially when 11 year old female goes through, I went through again. Yeah. So, so like subcutaneous fat changed. Um, like my vocal, the texture of my, of my vocal cords changed and like the hair thickness and things changed. And then your body is how you reference. So I began sensing the world slightly differently and therefore communicating slightly differently until I resolved into how natal females communicate, which is much more communicating the emotional and the space and the sensations. Um, and then having coherence, it's like they're outlining the topic and then the topic emerges in the middle of the outline. Whereas, <laughs> so true, right? Whereas men, so we have an idea and then we scaffold the logic of that idea and push that idea forward and then analyze it together. But I do want to make a point here. It's, I think what this does is like the idea of the absolutes, I think is dangerous in most instances, but the idea, I totally agree with you where we're operating in, uh, like the, the more common, right? Mm. Like of course, there's exceptions to every rule, but the rule does not disprove, mm. or the exception does not disprove the rule. Yeah. So you're saying this, of course, 
you know, uh, the feminine using logic, the masculine using uh, a lot of emotion. However, the base, like you're saying, the masculine really putting out yeah. and the feminine putting in, which you think of this idea, you know, the masculine, like men, uh, when they uh, make love with a woman, they are then giving them a seed. And from a little seed that's microscopic, one of, what did I say, 100 million mm-hmm. creates life. Uh-huh. I mean, a baby, it's very, a very, very powerful thing. Anything that is given to a woman, in my mind, it literally is received and it expands. Mm-hmm. You give a woman a house, she makes it a home. Mm-hmm. You give a woman food, she'll turn into a meal, not just ingredient. It's a very different construct. And I do believe that's the separating factor. And when you mentioned it was the uh, dismantle the negative consequences of the patriarchy. Yeah. Part yeah not exactly. That's what yeah. you're saying. While doing that, that's the intent. Yeah. However, when they're doing that, it's also taking away the positive right. of the patriarchy. Right. And then this is the same, same, right? Throughout time, the council of, of female elders always kept the male war chiefs in check, right? It was always, you know, yes, men, you can fight over your territorial disputes, but does it grow corn? You know, like, can, can we, can we yeah, feed our children with yeah. this? Like stay focused with all your intentions. Would you say, would you say the, the male, the masculine then does have more of the ego? Uh, yeah, yeah I think so. So the ego is a human construct to keep the evolutionary payoff systems running. So it's it's the ego is here to protect us. It's not a bad thing. It's here to protect our our structure to then reproduce our structure and refine our structure. But I think when the ego is too tightly holding on the steering wheel, we then can't uh, expand into the ideological diversity and values diversity, which is also critical. Um, so to un- unpack that. Uh, if you have just Monsanto corn growing in your farm, you need to dump a bunch of pesticides on it so it doesn't get a virus and wipe out the whole species. Well, wasn't Monsanto? They were the ones that were just uh, they were sued. Like, oh, they were sued all the time. Yeah. And so it, it's monocropping. It's, it's hegemony. And the same with ideology. If you only have one ideological frame, you need right. to like artificially prop it up and and, and and you know put the pesticides on it and fertilize it with these chemicals so it stays because it naturally wouldn't grow that much. In, in in actual thriving life, you have diversity, right? A forest. You have diverse life forms, and those life forms all figure out interesting transactions and economics of nutrients and whatnot. And they have robustness, so then it's resilient to all these different threats and impacts that might come and can't be expected. And and that's that's robustness in diversity is 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 for thrival, for 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 mm-hmm. for resilience. So the same with our ideology and our ego. We need to. I think there's an incentive to be in disagreement with another person such that we can refine our stance. And it's not a finite game. I'm right, you're wrong. And the, the, the one who's right then gets more attention. And then we all kind of focus onto that one ideology that becomes a zeitgeist, that becomes fascism, that becomes all the bad things. The ability to be in disagreement. And then my goal in communication is to help you refine your perspective. And then you're, you're, you would then be helping me refine my perspective right mm, like i'm not going to take care of you yeah i'm going to take care of me for you mm. and you're going to take care of you for me as mm. jim Rohn says that's right? really powerful as tony robbins as well yeah, jim, yeah. jim Rohn survives the teacher yeah yes yeah, the idea of are you going to any not just relationship but even in society like yeah and also what's his name uh jfk even said yeah. we were speaking about his brother earlier yeah. is the idea of it's not asking what your country can do for you but what you can do for your country yeah. and even that's such a that's a, the beauty of, for me, that's a truth. Mm-hmm. And that's a truth. It's, it's, a, it's a blanket truth, but then you can go in other areas saying, don't ask what you can do for your, your partner can do for you. Ask what you can do for your partner. Mm-hmm. It's that, that model. It's like, a, it's like an algorithm, right? Yeah. Right? That can be placed into many different places. And to that exact point, 
how often is it that, especially now consumers, especially in the West or more yeah. developed cities, we're constantly looking to see how much attention we can receive because that's the new currency attention, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the phone is, if we look at the phone, it's the most expensive real estate on the planet. Mm-hmm. That's what I said. <laughs> I came up with this a few days ago. It does, right? People think, you know, literally it could be the White House because it's very difficult to get in there or to own it, right? almost impossible basically, or other places in the world, but it's really the phone. Mm-hmm. You know, we've shifted from the idea of, I know this is a segue, just the idea of the attention being on the billboard outside when we're driving. Mm-hmm. We're going on the highway, we're driving down the roads versus now the billboard is on our phone mm-hmm. right? because we've become the avatar that's marketed to. Mm-hmm. No one sees the billboards. Sometimes they do, but people are finding food on their cell phone. They're finding entertainment on their cell phone. Mm-hmm. They're finding romance, romance mm-hmm. on their cell phone. And if we want to speak to that, it has to be done through the phone. So through that new model, how I see it, we've created the need for people to want to give, but really in the idea that they just want to keep receiving because it's receiving the attention. They receive the attention. Maybe it fills the ego a little bit more. And through that, they now have sustenance in their life. Mm. All that in short to say is, are we going into things in modern society, especially in places like LA where we're recording this, to actually give out with that intent of we want to provide value mm. or we're only giving because it's conditional on the fact that we may receive? Yeah. Well, yeah, I think it's, it's possible to, to give for the collective for sure. Um, it, it, it's interesting what you're bringing up with, with uh, the phone being the most expensive real estate. I think that the human technology interface is a feedback loop that's guiding our evolution right now. And mm. there's a lot to unpack in there. Please, please. Um, so the technology is, can be as much as the, the techniques and protocols we use to make a baby, the techniques and protocols <laughs> we use to grow food, the yes. techniques and protocols we use to make a community. These are technology and then language itself is technology. And language was limited because different words have different meanings, different locations. Whereas geometry is sacred and axiomatic, no matter where it is, a triangle, a circle, mm. a square, have this, this divine truth to them. Hence, like, all the ancient monolithic structures are really encoded textbooks of geometric truth. Um, and now we have phones, right? It's, it's, uh, I think it's pretty logical to conclude that you know, we haven't had telecoms in this way in any past um, experience of human society so there's something new here the uncharted territory but it is disembodying us and that i think it, it kind of comes back to the, the gender conversation because the, the phone is capable of more violence and more care than any one body is and then any gendered body can use a phone or use a technology device to do any any gendered action so it's it's extract it's abstracting action into this grid that then expresses in the material form so far from the body that i think again it disembodies us so if you end up building a business that is ripping nutrients out of the ground and, and impoverishing communities you may not even know because wow. all you're doing is drop shipping on amazon right <laughs> You literally have no idea of the consequence of any of the actions. Yeah. And everything you're seeing is just the positive consequence. Yeah. No externality. Yeah. So the Dunbar's number, we've got about 170 relationships we can track in our physiology, and that takes a long time to update that. 
maybe there's some linguistic technologies that could increase that number that I'm sure some politicians have mastered in DC. That's the number for sure. That's yeah. the number of uh, the Dunbar, so the yeah. number of relationships we can have that we can realistically and ideally manage. And then when now when you shift, people are on Facebook, oh, I have 2,000 Facebook friends. Yeah. No, you don't. Yeah. yeah, or that's what they're labeled as, but call any one of them for an emergency. Yeah, exactly. Unless you're the most amazing fundraiser, go fund me thing. You're gonna have a lot of trouble doing this. So our influence has scaled, but our actual body hasn't really tuned into the responsibility of that. So in the past, when we had more influence, we were mentored. There was maybe a court around the lord of the of some region or some ruler, and, and there was some mechanisms that really required that individual to rise to the responsibility of having so much influence, right. and then to habituate that. Like they they would have posture coaches, speech coaches, and they would be very refined. And I would imagine that their experience of being a ruler with that much influence wasn't um, anywhere near what the experience of an uh, Instagram influencer is today. You look at, let's, let's just say Queen Elizabeth, when she took the throne, I think she was, well, like 30 or something. She was very young, let's just say. But even any other kings or queens in history, when, they raise, when they're risen, and it's a power, they have, like you're saying, that court, uh, speech coach, someone, people who are mentoring them with the responsibility that they have, mm -hmm. right? And that, that's when you see a lot of celebrities who, when they're in their late teens or 20s, they get so much wealth, influence, then they get people around them and, yeah. and they swim. If they don't, then they sink. Now, into the example, you can have someone who's, let's say, in the tech space or Bitcoin, they do a pump and dump mm -hmm. when they're maybe in their late teens, 20s. And not even in a negative way, but they went from being, let's say, really a dork in this space, mm -hmm. but they went from being a broke dork to a very rich dork. Yeah. So what they did is they scaled the power and influence, but in my sense, they also scaled in their ability to also be reckless because yeah. there's no guidance around them. Yeah, yeah. So this is value and price, and there's a difference. So markets can indicate value but sometimes price is disconnected from that value. So yes, this, this, the crypto influencer who had essentially an NFT scam accessed price, they, they leveraged price and they accumulated material wealth, but the value they created in society isn't really commensurate with that. It's true enough. So it's really an abstraction. So it's, it's almost like if there was a natural flow, they, like a river, they, got a little fork out and have this big deep puddle of wealth, but they're not really connected to the flow of value and currency through the community. Would you say they're taking away from the value? Uh, well, they, it depends on what they do with it. Yeah. So if they're then using that to develop and cultivate themselves and then create value that's actually recognized beyond the financial side, maybe they could become amazing leaders. But if they're using that to just really freeze their development and double down on that dissonance or disruption that got them all that attention, that's not valuable. So th there's a lot of people who speak on the on uh, the potential of of tokenized economics as utopian or prototype utopian, which means that they're going to iterate us towards a new form of economics, new form of relating that's better. And I, I think there's some truth there, but there's also uh, uh, I think we have to mature beyond disruption. It's not disrupting the work of our elders that we're actually so. Um, you know, we, we are indebted to in some ways. It is, how can we enhance that collective project? How can we enhance 
the intergenerational cultivation of value and be a part of legacy, right? How can we be both good ancestors to our descendants, right? Mm -hmm. And good descendants ourselves to our ancestors, right? So how are we in that flow? What is our signature? And yes, more material resources help with that. So if we've leveraged and gotten that great price on the asset that we've created in the world, amazing, critical, I think, to the material integration of these spiritual concepts, but still uh, not end game, mm-hmm. right? It's still action and who we are, and, right? Uh, Jim Rohn again says, go make a million dollars, not to have a million dollars, to become someone, become the person who is worth a million dollars. Yes, and the skills you learn to pick up in the exactly. process. And then give the, give the money away. Someone, right? you, like someone gives you 50 million, that's great. I mean, look, I'll, I'll take 50 million, sure. I'm not gonna say no to that. Although you get that, who did you become in the process? Mm. And also on this pod, it's of course we infuse a philosophical aspect mm-hmm. as well as a growth aspect. Mm-hmm. Right? We go with the name uh, Zeus with Bruce. Yeah, I tell people a fancy story, but really it's it's really because it rhymes Zeus and Bruce. Now, but really the story of Zeus, right? He's never in Greek mythology, right? His his father Kronos sees him and his siblings as a, as a threat, so he decides to eat them. Mm-hmm. Although Zeus's mother Rhea, what does she do with Zeus? hides him, replaces Zeus with the rock, Kronos, maybe with his ego that's mm-hmm. too far ahead, says, oh, let me just see it. Yeah, that falls into this trap. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's too trusting. Who knows? Zeus gets sent to the bottom of, let's say, uh, of the hierarchy, for lack of better mm-hmm. terms. And he's now with the everyday common uh, common people, right? Mm-hmm. He's, he's in this environment where now he doesn't have as much value as he knows he has. So we tie that in here because, for me, it's so much the story of, your circ- you can't control your circumstance, but you can influence your destiny through your decisions. Mm-hmm. Of course, you need the resource, you need the know-how, you need the leaders, mm-hmm. that infrastructure. Story of Zeus, what does he do? He lives with the common people, and he knows he has that inner potential, However, like the money that he can get, the resource. Mm-hmm. However, he can't get it until he becomes someone, because when he becomes someone, he becomes the god of Mount Olympus. Yeah. Not just the tyrant king who got there, through yeah. the hymn or however it happened. He became yeah. someone before he was someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. It's, it's a powerful yeah. shift, man. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's the inner work. And, you know, there's something about being a renunciate. So in that shift, I was just talking about this yesterday. There is, you know, I'm valuable, right? You're valuable. Like, I'm a gift. Right? Supporters and believers surround me. Now, if I am in the Himalayas meditating, I am still valuable. Right, that is like 100% come from being. And yet, I believe there is the application of self, which is part of my choice to have been born a human and to, to have the human experience through which life is experiencing itself. And that means that I am here to be fully applied, mm. fully integrated. And it doesn't mean that I need to corner the market and become a billionaire. It might be an interesting experience if that unfurls. But it, what it does mean is that I am in relationship. I'm in the market. I'm in the, in the market of ideas. Mm-hmm. I'm in the market of execution. I'm in the market of, of, of strategy. And that's why I, 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 you know, in Emergent Intelligence, we talk to a lot of these founders and get that mindset clarity on, you know, why not me? Why, why not me? The one who builds the next fuel source, the one who builds the next propulsion system, why not me? And that's exactly right. Like, like we have this done the inner work and we're doing it and we're continuing that to lifelong infinite game. And then how is it expressing in who you are in the world? How are others enrolled in that? And then how are you then leading teams of people to execute on these large projects? And it's, 
it's literally when Zeus shifted, as you said, into um, who we know him as, and he was still uh, unestablished in the institution of the, of the Greek pantheon, then he very quickly rose to his status because wow, he was so being true. an integrity at every decision point, right? No way. Yeah, so there's there's different routes that were taken. That's a very powerful. I never even thought of that because, yeah, essentially, it, there's a great book uh, by Stephen Covey, not the one who wrote Seven Habits. I think it was his, father, his son. But it basically says uh, uh, the speed of trust mm. is what it talks about. And trust typically builds, you know, when you see someone do something that, like, because what is integrity? In my mind, it's doing what you say you will do. Mm. And of course, all integrity is equal because it's integrity. But the integrity that someone has when they do something that's unpopular, that's difficult. Mm. They keep their word. As you're saying, Zeus, if we study more of the history, he was doing this more at every level. Mm. And that leads to him climbing the ranks. It, mm. it, it snowballs and it builds. And I think that was why he was probably the god of Mount Olympus and not his father, Cronus. Yeah. Right? I can't not point to this. So, so Kronos and Kairos, mm-hmm. right? So Kronos chronological time, mm. Kairos is emanating time. It's a, it's a, it's a deep present moment. Can you, so can you actually, is myself not familiar yeah. with that concept? Yeah. 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 So Kairos is, is deep time. Uh, the Jesuits have their Kairos retreats, uh, but this is a Pythagorean concept. It just, it just means emanating time. Oh. It's nonlinear time. It's this state of, of presence. And we have different waypoints in our Kairos like a chirotic experience where you maybe meet somebody and time dissolves, you're in flow with them, you're in ecstasis with them, and you have this energetic resonance. And then next time you're floating around in chronological time, maybe years have passed, but you see them again, you drop right back in, it's like, oh, I'm there. We're, wow. at, we're at the same time, space, point of Kairos. And so, so the, the Hermetics will talk about the intersection of Kairos and Kronos is the crucifixion. So we talk about the Christ consciousness, and there's Jeez. a lot of uh, esotericism on this. But when we talk about our chronological time intersecting with these deep moments of present awareness, that is the that is that point at which the Christ consciousness emerges. Ooh. We can go deep on that. Definitely, because I know we wanted to talk about um, more so, not necessarily just the death of God, but the also rise of, as we said, the guru, rise yeah. of the, the social avatar, becoming a deity where people yeah. worship. Um, that's, I believe that's actually a really great segue. Yeah. So sure. just so uh, I can reiterate that, that you were talking about uh, chronological time and the chirotic time. Uh-huh. So you said it. And then when you meet in the middle, that's really the crucifixion. crucifixion. Yeah. yeah. Explain more on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and then we'll, yeah, we'll transition so, to the segue. So I alluded earlier that language has place-based meaning. So it's not really that good a technology to be universal. But geometry is universal. So this concept of the cross, you see in many different um, esoteric frameworks and and just to give that so there's exoteric which is an institutional religion so christianity the esoteric side of that which is only available through direct experience and there are protocols to have direct experiences breath fasting plants right medicines Mm -hmm. ceremonies the esoteric side is gnosticism islam exoteric the esoteric side is sufism judaism Exoteric institutional Judaism, the esoteric side is the Kabbalah. So all of these esoteric technologies are typically gated by initiatory experiences called ordination. You're ordained a priest. Mm, you're ordained 
into these brotherhoods and, and sisterhoods. Is this mainly just with monotheism, or this is all this is all three models? So if you're in, in an asana, if you're in, in, a, in a yogic school, uh, like in a mandir, yeah, you, you so if you're at, at, at tantrika, you'll be in the takas and dakinis, would then have initial experiences and basically train these these protocols to reach ecstasis and then fine tune these protocols. So in Gnosis is that experience of no time, direct experience with God, source, divinity, uh, or the awesomeness of all everything all at once, which is so great and bright that we then create chronological time to artificially spread that awareness into an artificial past, artificial future and create linearity. What is the power of linearity? It throttles down the sensation of that truth because the human animal can't operate here and now in 3D with that 5D awareness. So we spread it out into the illusion of past, present, future when really it's all right now. It's the chaotic time, mm-hmm. as you said, whereas it's the chronological. Exactly. Yeah. So we, we spread it out into an artificial past and future so then we can create distance and space from those experiences. Because right now you are a child and you are your, your elder and we're, you know, we're talking as young adults. Well, that's the same thing. I mean, the same uh, coda when coda was five mm-hmm. is still here. It's very much here. Right? That, that reminds me of one of my best, or one of my favorite thought experiments. A little bit related, it's, it's the, I forget the name of it, but it's someone's ship. And the idea is you have a ship at, uh, at the port, and it's, let's say it's a wooden ship. And every, you probably oh, heard Jason, of, Jason the Argonauts it, is the, the ship. Yeah, but yeah, you're replacing the wood. Yeah, it's like every time it goes out, there's a piece that's replaced. Is it still the same ship? Because, you know, Literally every seven years, like your your skin changes, all these yeah. things, but you're constantly being molded and shaped. One new experience, one traumatic experience, one yeah. uplifting experience. Are you still coda at that point? Is that the frame of thinking chronologically? Is yeah. it uh, chirotic? Yeah. You said it was? yeah, well, I, I would say that all of the potential wood that ever existed and, and will exist is part of that ship whether we're experiencing it in the configuration of that ship or not mm-hmm. is less relevant. So in true deep present moment awareness, Thich Nhat Hanh will talk about in the opening book, an opening page of being peace. He's, he, he essentially describes that I am the words on this page, the tree that was turned into the paper of this page and the air that I was breathing in and out. And he says, I am all of that. And the first page of Being Peace by Thich Nhat Hanh literally brings you into that awareness of like this book and your and myself are one. I want to add to that. It's quite uh, if you see something different here, but I think he's speaking there in metaphor. I also think it's very literal. Though. I think it's a literal. I think it's quite literal. Yeah. I mean, if we even think about it logically, let's say when either one of us passed away, let's just say we're buried, or even if we're ashes, we're going to go to uh, like there's going to be dirt or some soil. Yeah. From there. At some point, there will probably be some plants that will be created, or whatever it becomes, yeah, yeah. and then that becomes plants. So then it will become, let's say, a tomato. It, yeah. At a certain point in time, it will, yeah. right? And then also, where are we creating the tools for the computer we're recording with, the microphone? Yeah. I used the example of the Tesla before. Um, I'm still working to afford a Tesla, yeah. but I was saying, like, guys, we are the Tesla. They go, what do you mean? So of course we are. This the Tesla was built from what materials on Earth. Earth. 100% natural. It's, so literally we are, I think people see that and they think it's very hippy-dippy, very LA, metaphysical, all this stuff. If we actually ground it in reality, I think Thich Nhat Hanh was actually quite correct. I think he's embodying it more of interconnectedness uh-huh. and the energy aspect. So on that frame, however, on a literal frame, we literally are everything that exists. Yeah, so yes, we are everything that exists, literally. 
and it is very LA and metaphysical. And there is a bit of a deficit in people's literacy around metaphysics. Mm. And that's, I think, the meaning crisis that's pushing people to places like LA and Austin where these conversations are happening. Because historically, we trusted our spiritual authority, we trusted our institutional religion, just like your financial health is correlated to being banked, right, being in the macroeconomic flow, being able to access debt instruments and finance projects and having reputation or credit score. The same in a spiritual institution of a church where you're showing up every week, you're in spiritual community and you're in discernment and the priest is preaching or the rabbi is preaching, but they're not the ultimate authority. They're guiding and shaping our, the individual parishioners or congregations introspective work. And then they have one-on-one -on -one moments of reconciliation and or study together where you then do that quest on your own because ultimately I sleep as me every night and no one else. That priest isn't going to be in, you know, it's, it's not, it's me and source every day for all eternity. You and source? As and me as source, me, source. me and okay. source. Like, like it, it, it's, it's, it really is, there is isolation at a certain level of awareness and as witness and then as source. So I, I believe that the institutional religions have, because they're human structures, have failed or fallen short of the rate of innovation in society and technology and then the communication of our telecoms and media that we're now all becoming pretty well versed but not really formally structured in the epistemology uh -huh. so we all have a proximity to these concepts mm -hmm. but we haven't really been trained to deal with them could it be so it's this is why i love so much about uh biblical texts and even you know, torah yeah. quran whatever yeah. you read and uh like the analogs, Bhagavad Gita, yeah. just the idea that, you know, we all fall short of the glory of God. Right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's even a deeper discussion. What is God? How do we define that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is God like our highest self? Is our highest energy? Is it knowledge? Right. Yeah. And I believe it's uh, Socrates. I love one of my favorite philosophers who talks about um, that true evil becomes like ignorance because mm -hmm. you wouldn't be acting in a way that's out of alignment. Mm -hmm. You know, you may think you want to secure your family's needs. It's like, oh, I want it. So that's why I had to rob that family. Uh -huh. No, no, no. There's another way. We just haven't found it yet. Uh -huh. So is God the highest uh, the highest place that we want to reach with intelligence, with how we know how to operate within the system? Right. And, and maybe there's a disconnect. And like technology, maybe technology does become our next God, right? Yeah. A, a powerful story just before we get in there yeah. is I was hearing, I want to give him credit. It was Pitbull. Uh, <laughs> and it, this guy's actually surprisingly deep. And you know, I saw him perform once and I'm like, wow, this guy's good. He was talking about something of, if we look at the story of, uh, I'm going to connect it here. Yeah, the story of uh, Adam and Eve, right? Yeah. Adam and Eve, they're in the Garden of Eden. Uh, Eve eats the apple, right? That was the one thing God said not to do, right? It was the bite of the apple and then God comes in. I believe even before she finished the apple, yeah. I believe. If we look at our phone, uh -huh. our phones, when we turn around, what do we see? A bitten apple. And when we use our phones, we're using it like we're praying to it. We have one hand, one hand. Ritual. Ritual aspect. Swipe. Swipe. Double tap. Double tap. Yeah. Swipe up, swipe down. Hopefully yeah. you get swiped right on. Hopefully, yeah. right? You're getting swiped left, it's not too much fun. Yeah. And with the phone, does that now become our God? For sure. For sure. And this is brands. Brands and religions have similar frames. Um, but just going into the God of Genesis. So the God yes. of the Torah is a little different theology than the God of the New Testament. And a lot of scholars will look at this, right? There's, there's, and, and, and Genesis is really different than the rest of the Torah. Um, but these are frames for folks to shape consciousness and then 
ultimately manifest their lives, communities, and, and purpose here on earth. So there's a lot of power in the words where we generate a whole realm of possibility in our language. Mm. So looking at uh, the, this good-bad as a construct that was later, much newer than, this, than the, the, the scripture of Genesis. And the, so good-badness is not, I think, the intent with the apple and the Garden of Eden. The concept of knowledge is illumination. So Lucifer is light. Imagine Lucifer is, 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 is more light being applied to, to uh, uh, say you're in the jungle and you have a broader light. Now you're aware of all of these things. Now your consciousness is spread out in all this awareness. So it takes discipline to focus and act and proceed. Whereas if you just had the one amount of light and followed the framework, you probably would have moved forward more, but you maybe not would not have been as conscious. So maybe less agency and freedom, but then more action. So there's a balance between light and action. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't, it's not wrong to have more knowledge. It's not bad, but it is, yeah, we are accountable to that increased influence and awareness that comes from having more light. So if we look at what evil is, it's the absence of light. So in, in, if we have intention to do good, we all start saying like housing the homeless and then moving people who are at risk for housing instability into more housing assistance programs and whatnot, all those good intentions start institutionalizing and scaling up. And then there might've been some oversights. We might've not been able to house trans people. We might have not been able to house people that have um, a, a movement impaired or different levels of physical ability. And then suddenly there's this, someone could look who's personally affected by that and say, oh, you have oppressed me intentionally. So they have personified the shadow. Whereas really, you know, the sofa kind of eats you a little bit. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah we're finding our, our space <laughs> in it. Um, they, they may point to that shadow in between all these good intentions and say there's a collusion of negative actors there that are, are aimed at me. Right. When in reality, that's just the space between all the good actors. So is there agency then? Because then at what point, that's the whole idea of are you responsible for the outcome, right? Because something's like you can't control versus is there any autonomy? Any yeah, impact? the ego, we definitely own the impact of our actions, whether or not they were the intent, intention of our actions. Mm -hmm. So if, if, my, if I'm truly committed to being of service and then I hurt someone in the incidentals or in the unconscious bias of my intention being enacted in the world, I'm super down to help make that right because that, you know, my intention is to be of service. And here's now a new person to serve. Right. Right. Now it's when someone holds firmly to their their view that this is the right way, and then the other people are saying, "Hey, I'm hurting," and then they say, "Oh, too bad, so sad." Maybe there's some moral judgment on that, um, but it there, there's also considerations on where is that person who is identifying as experiencing harm? Are they actually experiencing harm, or is there <laughs> projection of uh, identity being attacked and they're attaching their self oh. to that identity. So if someone's saying, you know, I'm an oppressed person and then we're making uh, a world which enables more agency and freedom and more movement and more you know, self-authority uh, uh, and sovereignty. And then they're feeling, oh no, I'm now, like I can't, the, the oppression doesn't really connect to that. And they're still holding on to that oppression, even that oppression is ceasing to exist. They then they take it personally. Who am I if not oppressed? Yeah. Who am I if not the oppressor? Yeah. There's a lot there. There's a lot uh, there. Um, and this is this is like we are all agents and we are all consciously creating, but it may not we may we may not be ready to to own that. 
And mm. that, that's a point where we are in development. So in transformational psychology, you talk about the developmental framework that someone may be in and you speak to them there and you help them move more into coherence. You don't say come all the way into full agent creator. Yes. You say, Hey, what, you know, what's, how is that for you? Mm -hmm. And you help them maybe look at the next step. It, when sound, ready. it sounds like that's part of the coaching. And I know we're yeah. both in the space and it's figuring out how often, you know, you, you can't force someone to change. You, you can nudge somebody, but it's also part of that process of, because they're, they're in their identity, right? Do we use reverse psychology? Is that manipulative? Do we nudge them in a certain way? Is that manipulative? Yeah. Well, getting curious is, is not, not manipulative. Preserving someone's agency, right? You don't always wow. want to go in and smash someone's frame and leave them in a pile of rubble on the ground, right? You, 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 can, you can say, you can, you can build rapport. And in that rapport, bring embodiment. And then they can have their own direct experiences of ecstasis. They can find their own gnosis and find their own language to then manifest their own lives. That, that's a lot when people go into uh, therapists, psychiatrists, you know, obviously incredible professions. Just the idea you go in somewhere saying, oh, Coda, cool, Coda, you're, you're depressed, you're anxious, you're schizophrenic, you're this, 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 and that. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, let's give you some pills or this will be a framework. Three months, don't worry, I'll be with you. Okay. I mean, that you're shifting their identity so much. And even if they felt unstable, so maybe that gives them a sense of significance. Like, yeah. oh, I am this. Yeah, I can now be that. Control. It's control. And then you really did shatter their identity, replace it with a new one. The balance, and I'm curious how you'd see this, what is the balance of influence into someone's identity? Because like you said yeah. uh, earlier in the, in the episode that you can talk on a mic and get people to do certain things. Yeah. Of course. I mean, that's the thing people say, oh, am I responsible for what that person did? Mm. You're not. So if that person does something good and you help them, you have influence. Yeah. How responsible are you? Are you 80% responsible? Once you become 51%, are you more responsible than them? Yeah. How do you navigate the influence that a person can have on another? And at what point do you decide, okay, this is too much? And just navigating yeah. that entire realm. You're, you're in the realm of, of licensure. So uh, psychotherapist professionals have like licensing, licensing bodies and they're accredited so because they have very powerful tools God, so they about. they're checks and balances coaches are essentially the wild wild west in a lot of sense but some of them are licensed or 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 certified accredited like BC right, or right. So, you know i'm trained in qigong i'm trained in um zeg forum you know a, a whole host of things and now flow genome project we talk a lot about our frames that we work with and i've gone through those initiations and then working with the indigenous side of those frames so and then i have my lived experience and as one human sharing with experience to another, we can just, we can share. Hmm. Now, I think that the, the responsibility is to cause no harm. And when someone is still attached to a mask or a worldview, and then we're destroying that worldview, they're going to experience that as attacking them. You take something out, what's the replacing? And yeah. they're personalizing the experience. So maybe not taking it out but creating clarity and distinctions that they can accept or not accept that that frame isn't them and once someone's realized that oh i'm not the bundle of symptoms that are expressing as a pathology i'm actually a full human and this pathology is one diagnostic tool maybe a search query on google to find some mm. tools to mitigate this yeah. symptom expression and maybe this deeper transformational work that i can engage to then create a life that habituates then ultimately my body will grow Biology is upstream of psychology, and the body will grow to no longer fuel these patterns, and then I will, quote unquote, heal from this state. Maybe that person will embark on such a journey 
when they no longer identify with the symptoms and the pathology that had been labeled. A diagnosis is not a destination. And, and we don't need to remain as not a victim, as not a fill in the pathology. But when, and because when symptoms are very well managed, we may no longer satisfy the diagnostic criteria of that pathology. And that's, I think, the real transformational potential of some of the deeper technologies that are more in the coaching space. But then you have folks that are psychotherapists and internal family systems and process therapy and licensed clinical social workers with psychedelic therapeutic licensing, right? They, we have these multi-stack professionals now who can help. Uh, you know, I fall somewhere in the entrepreneurial mindset that comes from this coaching background that has experience in therapy and trauma as lived experience. So I rest more in the economic expression of someone's dharma and being in integrity and action with that and enrolling others in the world and then higher level strategy to support and grow that. But others rest in being a professional focused on trauma or focused on XYZ pathology and a set of tools to help treat that. So depending on where your guide is really resting and, and, and standing is how then we as a potential client can orient, is that the right guide for me at this stage in my journey, right? I may not be the right person to work with somebody at, at the beginning of their journey, but maybe someone who has tried entrepreneurship and failed a few times or has tried a lot of entrepreneurship, had a lot of success and is ready for the next thing, but is actually still seeking this external permission and worthiness then I can go in and yes, there's the professional skill around the, the business strategy, but then there's also the internal psychology and we can start working on the psychology and service of that later downstream mm -hmm. economic expression. So just understanding the map and understanding where one may be honestly in that and new insights may, may lead to the realization that, oh, I may be in a different place on mm -hmm. this map than I thought I was. I thought I was way out there ready to go in the game and really I've got some trauma that I got to work on. Right, right. Call on, that, call on someone who's specialized. And then the trauma gets realized or any kind of experience, it's like saying, oh, especially I think in relationships, you could dabble a little bit on that, is you can do a lot of work on certain things and then you get to a certain place within a new relationship or mm. an existing one and then you believe you did the training here in this new space but something deep-rooted comes up, right? It's like, wait, I worked on being trusted with someone. Why am I not trusting this person, right? And then once you dig really deep back down, you know, I, I don't believe in so much in going deep into traumas. I think a lot of the effect of reliving and replaying your trauma yeah. can actually have negative aspects. Right. However, finding the, like I, I like to call it the weed, and then pulling it out from the root, that's the only way you really extrapolate yeah. what needs to be extrapolated yeah. at the moment. Yeah. But like really getting to the nitty and gritty of it, to explain behavior. I think we don't go to the past to obsess with it and not to repeat it so that we can learn it, right? Uh, great author, Yuval Harari, we were talking mm -hmm. about earlier, love his books. He has such a great, I mean, I think he's, I think he's so, he's one of my favorite thinkers. Homo Deus, yeah. Sapiens, yeah. 21 Lessons. And one thing he talks about specifically, I mean, many things, my God. But one of his main things is that about history and that history is not the study of the past, rather history is the study of change. Mm. I think that's so profound. Mm. It's our personal history, our history as a collective, our history. What, how did we get from A to B? How did Coda, when he was 20, get to where he is now? What happened in that process? Mm. Yeah, you can learn the past. What's the value of that? Mm -hmm. How did he change and go through this metamorphosis, mm -hmm. going through you know, all your experiences with mm -hmm. also transgender, mm -hmm. with politics, now getting to the place where you are right now? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's useful to compare maps, right? So I made it here. So I have to fill it in an interesting trajectory or route that may be valuable for others, right? So I love that frame of history as the study of change because we that project is ongoing and we are we are shaping the future as we live it. So, uh, you know, I, we can go into Yuval um, Navari. He, he talks about the technology and really transhumanism. And homo deus mainly. Yeah, and, and these tools. So the fund of funds, we did a lot of diligence on AI the fund and of biotechnology, Earth Capital Advisors. Okay. I was with last year for the preceding 18 months. So doing actual diligence in the space, I was we were way ahead of this media bubble in uh, generative AI. So generative AI is a subset of reinforcement learning or unsupervised learning, which is a type of neural network that doesn't need a controlled training environment to produce novel insights. And it, it can recompile and, and create composable outputs that then can be interacted with to create further composable outputs. So it's do, it's really doing what humans do with thinking. And uh, now we're seeing some companies realize the upper limits of large language models, which are now upon us. And then there's, we're putting in ontologies or structures of logic. So then we're putting in frameworks into these models to not only have this recall ability, but now also have perspective. And that's going to make the models in the, in the next quarter or two come out with much, not just how does Jordan Peterson think or how would, would Socrates have thought, but also like how would they then create new insights on new topics in consistency with how they created their current corpus of, of insights. Right. So is there a new insight? Is it based off of the... Is it the study of the pattern of how you arrived at past uh, insights? And then using that to create new insights in, in that would really... So I'm curious to see mm. in the near future if I feed my entire corpus of writing and work into an AI that then talks like me, which is already happening. I'm having it write stuff for me and it sounds like me as a lexicon it's using, the phraseology it's using. But I'm curious, will then they derive conclusions that are similar to what I am actually deriving? A few deep uh, points I want to touch on because I know we're nearing uh, closer. We're well, nearer to the end. Yeah. Um, Not far, so yeah. yeah, yeah that's right. I truly yeah. love where we're yeah, at. Yeah, we're yeah, really yeah. hitting it. Yeah. Um, so then, I think that like one thing that uh, comes up for me uh, as you're saying that is at what point is there like a new like a genesis of an idea in our mind, right? So for you're mm. saying when you're speaking with like AI can write like you using a lexicon, mm. like your lexicon, is everything predictable then? So. Or is there any, I guess I'm getting to the point of determinism mm -hmm. versus yeah, like free will. Yeah, great uh, book and now series on this. So Isaac Asimov writes the Foundation series. Now it's an Apple TV series that released their second season over the summer. I'm currently watching that. And they call psychohistory. Psychohistory is the study of past events to inform future outcomes. And it's very um, sophisticated mathematics that they're using, which are not dissimilar to what we're actually experiencing in technology today. And the, 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 the plot essentially says the, this mathematician has predicted a coming dark age in this galactic empire of, of societies. And to then shorten the dark age, he's building a foundation that will contain all of human knowledge and allow us to reboot faster. And reboot faster, but in the sense of... He goes and think of like building pyramids that contain textbooks so we can mm -hmm. reboot. 
um, after the, the, the collapse of empire will happen and then we'll be able to start and avoid some of the lessons learned. We won't go into the same expression. It's a very interesting thought because he's dealing with AI, robotics, cloning, um, governance. It's very aristocracy class. Well, it's also the idea of what, what is the library of Alexandria, right? When it's burned down, I mean, how much knowledge and wisdom and insight is burned down there? How do we preserve it, right? And that's again the study of history is how is history even written, right? Mm -hmm. It's you know they say it's his story to make it gendered, mm -hmm. uh, typically, but then also is it the victor who writes it, right? Mm -hmm. At what point are we actually accepting history as it is? We're able, you said Isaac Asimov? Isaac Asimov. He's yeah. a philosopher, no? Yeah. 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 A little, uh, I guess we're all philosophers, for sure. right? That's yeah. one thing I want to encourage on here yeah. as well is really, I, I, I do want to break this down quick because I have yeah. a couple other questions yeah. I want yeah. to get to. Even philosophy, right? Yeah. So often we use words. One, the overuse of certain words, we mm -hmm. actually dilute it of its value, right? Mm -hmm. So if we call everything a tra tragedy, okay, if I drop my coffee or our teas, tragedy, I'm diluting its actual value by honestly, in my, my mind, abusing it because so often we're so dependent on dramatic effect of language because mm. we can't actually art, uh, properly articulate it. Mm. We take certain words and put it on certain places, right? Mm. I think that's that's one of the challenges uh, we tend to face. Um, I just lost my train of thought on that one. One of the challenges we tend to face in diluting our, our, our words, um, are there certain words that we're diluting that you feel mm. like it would be better not to dilute as we all step into this identity of philosopher. Oh yes, exactly. Culture. So the yeah. philosophy aspect, uh, just like the train, you said the river, there's a fork, there's different places. Uh, explaining, I think people do look at uh, philosophy and even personal development and growth. If you even look at the etymology of mm. philosophy, right? So philo means someone that love, is in love with, right? Mm. Yeah, so now you use a great, uh, I'll say cinephile because we're in LA, be respectful of the, the culture, uh, cinephile, right? Uh, they, their love of uh, film. Yeah. If then we go to philosophy, what does that translate to? Philo is love of uh, Sophie, Sophia. That's mm -hmm. my niece's name, actually. Oh, amazing. Uh, I kind of gave it to her, but my sister doesn't agree. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. I, I didn't you inspired it. it. I, I definitely did. I definitely <laughs> did. And she's not, not my favorite, but no, she is. Of wisdom, right? So philosophy is the love of wisdom. And okay. philosopher is a lover of wisdom. Yeah. Right? So sure. I, I want to bring that in because we talked about Isaac. And I think that's something that. For me, it's very personal because, yeah, learning philosophy is not to be so like someone who's erudite mm -hmm. and is knowledgeable about a very specific field. It's the ability to contextualize an experience. Mm -hmm. One of the best experiences I believe of that are people who are going through suffering, but it meant suffering. Mm -hmm. Not suffering that, and you know, uh, I feel lonely. The mm -hmm. suffering of, let's say, a Holocaust survivor. Yeah, someone in Israel right now. Someone in Israel right now. Someone experiencing these tragedies. Yeah. And the idea of Victor Frankl, mm -hmm. right? His exact idea, I believe Nietzsche said it first, but uh, a person with a strong enough wife can bear uh, anyhow. Yeah. And it's that idea. That's his philosophy. Yeah. So I don't share this, especially on the podcast and how we're going about it, to just be the ivory tower scholar, although that's nice in some capacity. Yeah. How do we make it practical? How are we pragmatic with yeah. our philosophy? Yeah, I love that. Um, one of the things that got me through the when I before I deconstructed the frameworks of feminism and remembered that wait, most every road was built by men. Nine point yeah, nine. I, I, I had this discussion. I, I want to go there too. Yeah, four percent of, of wealth is held by four percent of men hold the wealth. Ninety percent of men are actually middle class. Mm -hmm. um, the, the the kind of pointing at the patriarchy is bad. It's, it's a little bit inaccurate. And started to re reconstruct a, like a divine or conscious masculinity. Uh, I, I looked at 
um, what's my why? And I'm very interested in this mimetic evolution, this, this trajectory of our species, i.e. our legacy. And at the time I was in a hurry. So let's be, let's, let's, uh, let's augment our embodiment. And there's a, a, a vein of work called morphic freedom, which is what bodybuilders are doing, which is what cosmetic surgery people are doing, which is what the trans, transgender and transsexual community is doing. They're exercising morphic autonomy which is great, no shame, like go for it, have a third arm, get some wings, like do whatever you want when you're 18 and the developmental process is pretty stabilized. Interrupting that as a youth is I think a, um, an ethical consideration that I have a lot of thoughts about. But I was in this frame of, of peaceful evolution of our species and that allowed me to do things like have genital surgery and, and take hormones because I, I understood that my consciousness would go through an experience and the culture would go through an experience. I ultimately thought there'd be a rapture where everybody realized that this is the future and we're going to be a multi-planetary species. When you say rapture, are you meaning a specific event? Yeah, ra yeah. When you hear rapture, you think of biblical aspect. Yeah, it's, the etymology rapture just means a, a massive event where everybody, where history is, is proven. One camp is proven right, the other camps are proven oh, wow, right. Oh, wow, wow. So, so a lot of religions have yeah. a built rapture ideology. Yeah. And then we often, a lot of us unconsciously hold that, you know, people say synthetic versus natural, the natural's all the synthetic people will get a disease and die and the, the, the organic natural hippies will be like, told you so. And that's clearly a bias and clearly not true because all the chemicals that we're using in any kind of industrial process are also of earth and also natural. Exactly. We can blur that. Like the Tesla exactly. is natural. The cell phone is natural. Like your, your words aren't. But it exists really in nature right? by definition. It yeah. Is natural. Yeah. So there's a thing called techno naturalism, which integrates Elon Musk and the permaculture farmer on the same team of biodiversity throughout the cosmos, which is interesting. Techno naturalism is a cool integrative framework for futurism. Um, but I now have shifted from this transhumanism to uh, to a, a stewardship, a stewardship with ideological diversity. So how can we cultivate a robust garden of life? And that's my why. So that doesn't incentivize me to go as fast as I can to change my body. That actually incentivizes me to go as presently as possible into community and vulnerability relationship and connection, and then be of service of that whole garden and ecosystem, i.e. I'm working with the, the deep technology for fuel systems, transportation, energy systems, and I'm working with the Gina Health and Flow Genome Project on cultural architecture and plants as food and medicine. So this is supporting community flourishing, ethical tribalism, as it were. Mm. And I am very interested now if that why is strong enough to carry me through the coming cultural conversations around technology. And I believe that we can design things that our children will use and, and they're not going to be hunchback screen people. They're going to be heart-centered, deep breathing. If there's a connected. if there's a connection, then you're saying that with the techno naturalism, mm -hmm. the ability because you've seen the studies where, uh, I mean, studies are are forecasts, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you can forecast the weather; tomorrow can change. Obviously, there's some more predictability with certain studies, mm -hmm. but the idea that yeah, if we're hunchback uh, constant people, yeah. screen people, and how it's everything that it does to our psyche, our biology. I mean, a lot of the technology we even have now. It's not as exponential in my mind as the technology we had before, right? Even a wheel, <laughs> a, a, wheel right? a wheel compared to this, yeah. where like you were talking about your uh, grandpa yeah. for the Apollo mission, and the phone that has more computing power than yeah. the computers that took us. Yeah, <laughs> uh, there's there's a point on this I want to go on as well. Uh, 
it's related to, again, back to Yuval and with AI and all this stuff, he talks about the ability of humans to be happy. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a very powerful concept. I want to illustrate it and get your take on it. It's what does it mean to hack somebody? Mm-hmm. Right? If you're nudging someone or let's say when people use certain forms of manipulation mm-hmm. in the conversation, there's a manipulation there. You're hacking them in a way. Yeah. You're taking over, in a sense, their psychology and leading them to act a certain way. Just like when someone hacks into a computer system, something like that. The way he formulates it is like AHH, ability to hack humans, equals B times C times D. The formula he uses here, I'd love to hear your take, is the B is biological understanding. How much we understand human psychology now, neuroscience, Mm -hmm. the studies we can do with MRIs and all the EEGs and all these other systems that we have. That's the B. Next is C, meaning computing power. Mm -hmm. You know, like we talked about the cell phone, more computing power. Pattern recognition. Pattern, that's, Tony Robbins talks a lot about that aspect. Uh, So you have biological understanding, you have the computing power, and then what's the missing ingredient is D, data. So we can have, I can know about your body and what's going on there. I could have a computing power that can compute all the details and all the, the math I need to do. But I don't know the data, that, meaning the information about you, how much of that did you give up willingly to me? Mm-hmm. So what he talks about is why it's so easy to be hacked is because you have the biolog- biological understanding. Mm. You can compute all the data you need and then you actually have the data mm. that if you think about even in Nazi Germany or with Stalin or Mao, that for them, they're getting, they'd have to watch everybody. Maybe someone stops clapping, they're disloyal. But what if you're wearing an Apple watch and you're clapping, they read your biometrics and they know that when your eyes yeah. were looking at Mallory, the leader, they saw So all that to ask, yeah. it's a share. Are we at a nexus at a certain point where are, are we going to, is that going to take away the free will we have, our ability to make decisions yeah. and even be that individual with our identity or are we always getting hacked? And the question is just to what degree? Yeah, I love this. And this is the Rand Corporation of Technology Ethicists. They talk a lot about this. Rand Corp? Yeah, Rand. Yeah, they're here in LA. Yeah, my brother um, works there. Yeah. So uh, Ray Dalio speaks about algorithmically assisted decision making. And this was in 2019. I met him at Summit Series LA uh, for a smaller little invite only little gathering. And maybe about 10 of us in the room. And then we had dinner after. Uh, and he was talking about how his hedge fund, Blackwater, they do algorithmically assisted decision making, i.e. when they're in Zoom together and they're talking about things, there's a, an AI monitoring the biometrics of all the, of all the participants. And then when they have decisions, they have participation and then the AI is an insight to who was out of resonance biometrically and then they call they invite that person to to share with their experience of the discernment process mm. and then they find that there's actually a very different experience of the process and then they're able to retune so there's there, there's novel insights in the meeting coherence that are drawn by this algorithmic assistance um and it, that's, that's one example of i think it could be used for group coherence in a positive way um, when i was at the wearable device design company called soyana we we talked uh, we talked a lot about uh, can you make a VR experience where someone's HRV it influences the, the play of the game? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we actually had this concept of uh, AR mesh networks, which is augmented reality, then meshes. So you have five or six people in a shared augmented reality experience. So right now it's two people. And our biometrics would create a, a, a extended reality of the weather in the room. And we would 
you know, if we were getting angry, it would maybe start raining, or if we were like happy, it'd be sunshine and rainbows, wow. right? And wow. then you could see this being a really immersive, experiential wow. um, event could happen where people are wearing AR goggles, and then suddenly there's a there's a DJ that's mixing all of this information into Bark, a cool experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so there's some cool stuff where that could be used benevolently, but then there's the historic case where this like 16 year old woman was getting ads for pregnancy tests and her father saw these on her computer and was like, wait, what? And then it's you no, know, the email was linked to his account and he got an email for a pregnancy ad and, and she didn't even know she was pregnant. And then that sparked a conversation. Look at how much that can destroy so much of a social relationship mm -hmm. and that aspect of it. Like, oh, is that the same thing? Uh, I, I think it was when even Kobe Bryant passed away or any, sometimes this happens with celebrities is, they're notified of the partner's passing by the news. By the news. Yes. So, so mean, it, it, your question was, is this data freely given, right? Yeah. So, so uh, microfacial tension, uh, there's skin pigment, like how much blood is flows in the skin, there's eye movements, there's how long content lingers in a feed before you scroll down or up. And we don't even need these many data points to, have, to triangulate and, and, and position the next outcome, the next behavior of the user. When I was working at the COVID Alliance, Rand Corporation was involved because Google and, and Apple gave us backdoors to uh, every the location data of every cell phone. So then the Amazon team from the Alexa team, they, they were involved. And it's like they, they told us essentially that with the um, location, phone model, and last app, over time, those three data points can give us the next zero point prediction of the user. So How much? It, zero? So zero point means that if the user turns on the device, the, the team would be able to predict not only what app they would open, but what first input they would put. And that was just yeah. from location data, phone model, and app usage. The, the absolute very basics, and that's the whole argument he makes is, it's not about knowing you perfectly, it's about knowing you better than you ideally know yourself. Yeah, so exactly. So the ethics came in when we then had real-time location data of every phone, and it was under the government enablement for uh, essentially peacekeepers. They would send out, um, uh, social workers to break up crowds in Central Park, Manhattan during the pandemic. They didn't know how spreadable the virus was, and then eventually they shut that down because it was too, it was too predictive, and it was it could become like a Big Brother thing. Um, so it went into a research container that doesn't have full access to that data mm -hmm. anymore. But there, this is very much here and, and able to roll out. So the ability to know more about us than we know about us. Like I know that if I'm scrolling through Instagram and then suddenly I get an ad for like posture, like, wait, <laughs> you're am gonna I get slouching? This conversation, yeah. Am I slouching? Was it like ambient audio data from previous conversations right. that are selling that ambient audio data to other firms and then they're processing it and not generating insights and then delivering that associated with my accounts that are using Google sign-ins? But th that's a very real thing. Um, and uh, Uber owns five minutes before and after app usage of ambient audio data, and they sell that to Google, and Google uses that to. So we are able to yeah. hear. Yeah. So the ambient audio data is unstructured audio data from around, and that's part of the user agreement you sign when you use these apps. The ones that everybody reads. The ones that everybody reads. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so that ambient audio data has a lot of richness to it, and we're now developing AI to mine that better with local tone, which could lead to like, emotional sentiment and then other words and phrases and then lexicon. So you can associate that with the user profile and then bundle that. And, and the making sense of that data is a lot of work, a lot of money, but the fruits are we could not only put purchasing decisions in front of customers more precisely, but we could also start cultivating customers who didn't even know or didn't even really want that thing, but then could begin to be nurtured into then wanting and then transacting. 
And that's where the ethics become ambiguous. Mm -hmm. Are we helping? If I truly believe that my product or service is helping the world and making people's life better, I want to preserve their agency to freely choose it. I don't want to manipulate their momentum towards making a decision, but I, I don't want to um, hide or like, or like blur that. I don't want to artificially say, hey, if you're ready, you can possibly choose. I want to say it seems like the next step for you is to to talk about work and be together. Right, man. Oh my, we got so many different it. directions with that. Right. So it seems like my my sense is the next the next step would be to to have a, a focused conversation on on the plan you want for your life, and then talk about what it would take to engage me to have invest time in that supporting you in that, and then they say it sounds great, and we have a conversation, and I try to keep the math as objective as possible like really simple i'm just, okay 250 a session three for 600 it's really standard if you want to build something that has a specific outcome we'll look at the economic value of that outcome and how i want to participate in that or how i want to invest my time to be a part of that based on this 250 base frame now other folks are completely subjective and it's like three 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 or five 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 and mm-hmm. then you just all trust the energy and i i just I advocate for more objectivity. When I look at marketing agencies that have performance marketing rollouts, they have like performance and success fees based on the outcomes that they deliver and then set up installation fees. And it's just really objective, as objective as possible when pricing your offer, as objective as possible when enrolling your clients and preserving their ability to honorably say no. Mm. Like to honorably say no, not over pressuring, but not, not having no attractiveness, like be very attractive but don't force people in, be very attractive and then honor their no. Well, I mean, there's so many ethics and philosophical frameworks to that because it asks the question, how far do we push or nudge in order for a certain direction, right? I think it's the whole thing. The example I like to give is like a parent and their child, mm-hmm. the parent nudges their child to go brush their teeth, right? So many different models you can use. You could use fear intimidation. You could use, hey, the tooth fairy. So what you're telling, it's like this. Hey, if you put your, if you brush your teeth, whatever, you know, take care of yourself, uh, but when your tooth falls out, you know, put it under the pillow mm-hmm. and you'll get money from the tooth fairy. So what you're also, think about what you're demonstrating, what values you're instilling into your child. One, there's a fictional ghost that's going to come. Your tooth, you can sell parts of your body for currency yeah. to then buy you things. Mystery money will show up. Then again, it's also showing, hey, if you're intentional with your actions, you deposit and you're safe and secure, you can then derive a financial outcome, yeah. which is common good. Even a simple decision like that, what's the philosophical framework? So is there a focus on philosophy? Is there a focus on ethics, focus on morals? When people can tell me, Bruce, you need to get this coffee mug. Why? And then I can be convinced. Mm-hmm. I Did I do something against my own will? Maybe. Was it better for me? Maybe. And what, at what point do I decide or do they decide? Mm-hmm. Is when yeah. we're 17 years old, 364 days, 23 hours and 58 minutes, do we have zero autonomy and in individual making? But the moment we turn 18 years old in zero one second, <laughs> are we now an independent maker? Or to circle back, yeah. do we need to have a ritual yeah. that gets us to that point? When I went to Brazil, my cousin was 13, I was 16. She was like a 30 year old woman. She was so mature. Yeah. Now we're in LA. I, I talked to a, a grown man the other day, 54. He was like a teenager. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly. Incredible. So, so personal development is optional after you know puberty, yeah, <laughs> and, puberty. and a lot of people do not engage in that process. Mm. And the ability to discern who is walking with you is important. So, who's actually walking with me and really curating who's around me? So then, 
I experience the world, I shine the light on the, the types of awareness that are serving my mission. So there's infinite possibility and that's freedom. And there's also responsibility. Responsibility. I, I want to segue. Yeah, this is, we're getting closer to the yeah. It's very good. Uh, a couple of things we'll do is uh, the idea that Socrates brings up. I uh -huh. think it really encapsulates a lot of the conversation. It's about knowing thyself. Mm -hmm. and that's one of his main things. He went to the Oracle at Delphi, and that was one of the main messages that was actually sent. And his philosophy, uh, such from the Socratic method, is really knowing thyself. Mm -hmm. When we know ourselves better, we are less likely. It's still possible, but less likely to be influenced so much about what the external is dictating, right? We're not operating out in out. Mm. We can then begin to some capacity operate from in out in, mm. where the, our centers are based. Because if not, if you wake up, you're you just didn't sleep well for some reason, then you're so upset about everything that comes your way. The neighbor knocks on your door saying, "Hey, I want to clean your place." You may respond in rage, being, oh, "I didn't tell you to be here. What are you doing?" They just offer you something super nice. Mm -hmm. But because you're responding to the external versus preparing the internal to then dictate the external, right. you now become a subject of things you can't control. Right. And then we lose our free will. Right. right. It's this entire thing. So at that point of knowing thyself. Yeah. And then anything else you want to add here? Because I do have three final questions. Yeah. So, so, yeah, there's a massive return on investment in inner work. There's a massive return on investment in things like traveling. But as you travel, you just meet aspects of yourself that weren't as obvious in the context you're in. So wow. Traveling the world and meeting yourself and all these other people and experiences and cultures, massive return on investment. So I, I, I love that. And you mentioned a neighbor coming over. This is the same. The neighbors all over the world, right? Um, go, mm -hmm. go be in relationship. Uh, so I think that's on, on know thyself. And ultimately, beginning, when I, when I get a read on my negative self-talk or my level of self-worth, my life is defined by my self-worth. So elevating my self-worth. I talk a lot about that with my clients, if it's for entrepreneurship or just straight up coaching, it's a lot of relationship coaching uh, because all relationships are the same personally as they are in business, as they are in life, as they are with our mission. And it all comes from relationship to self, which is self-worth. So elevating self-worth is so foundational to anything you want to do. You will both have a baseline that you will come back to, but you also have a ceiling based on your self-worth. When you go above that ceiling, it's so unfamiliar, you often come back. So wow. this is you get you get wealth and you lose it. You get yeah. success and you crash it. Um, yeah. So talk a lot about that self worth, um, and then the self talk. Actually, in understanding where do we absorb that frame from our friends, our family, our religions, our schools, media, and then getting to the root of it. You know, I'm too much. Like sometimes I like last night even I was saying, oh, my energy is too high for this space. Like I, I want to leave. Um, and then I went to, went down and we were in my men's group, we were talking about negative self-talk and I workshopped the exact thing. And, and the insight that, that I got was, I am just right for this space. Right? I am valued here. I belong here. I'm a contribution. And bringing that in and that tracing the source of I'm too much back to not only in childhood with my brother and sharing a room together, making him uncomfortable, sharing space because he'd been used to have his own room when I was born. And then my father, and his father being Italian Americans, that expressiveness was too much for the American culture. So they, their survival strategy was you know, keep down the down low, yeah. fit in, blend in. So then I inherited that and again repressed my expressiveness. And then I twisted that into this gender expansiveness. But really, it's just I'm an Italian dude. I wave my hands around. I like fashion. Yeah. Like, no, it's, it's, how, how, how much we limit ourselves to adapt yeah. to the environment, right? Yeah. How, how often can we fight that? Yeah, yeah this is, that's very good. Uh, we'll do two separate sets. Uh, of course, just say 
I'll, I'll add it and where people find you and your information and anything that you'd want to share on that aspect. Sure. Uh, so codapip.com, that's K-O-D-A-H, P is in purple, I-P.com. You'll find my whole world there and there's a little chat bot that can help you find me. Um, and what you say, where they can find me and... Yeah. And where they can find you and just anything coming up for you. Sure, sure. So check out the blog. I'm engaging on that. Uh, I'm, I'm working on a, some larger projects in the, in the clean technology space, but I'm very much bringing on new clients for one-to-one work. So uh, I have almost a full roster. I can take on two or three clients if they're aligned. And I, you've heard my experience. So right now I'm working with a lot of people who come through gender and polarity and if it's their body or their relationships and helping people integrate that. And I'm also working with folks who have had expansive experiences, most often by psychedelics, and then are looking for integration, but they're high intellectual people. Mm-hmm. So I'm working with lawyers and doctors who have had a psychedelic experience and they're high performers. So it's not, they want to understand how this integrates into their ontology and frame overall, and I can help integrate the map on that. So psychedelic integration and relationship coaching, um, codepip.com. You'll see all my futurism, all my entrepreneurial strategy, and all of what I just mentioned. Powerful. Yeah. Uh, and then the last thing we'll answer, I typically, it's a uh, question, just you can make it one word if you want to put a little phrase you could. It's three of them. Uh, more so just come from the heart, not from the head. Life is? Life is adventure and novelty. A P- gift. <laughs> Adventure or a P- uh, novelty like that. Yeah. Um, people are? People are family. I am? I am grateful. Powerful. <laughs> I like to do this through because it's a lot of identity. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Say and, that and, and a guest just arrived. And and just arrived. Perfect okay. timing. <laughs> Pleasure, man. Thank you, Koda. Appreciate you, brother. Thank, Thank you, you so guys much. for listening. Until the next one. All right. Take care. Awesome, awesome. A lot of fun, a lot of fun. (laughs) Perfect timing.